Turn with me to John chapter 19. You can go back to the first slide. I'm not quite there yet. John 19. We're going to be looking at verses 16b. Um, if your Bible's anything like mine, it may separate verse 16 and 17 into different sections. Uh, we're going to start when it says, so they took Jesus. But we're going to get there in just a minute. Um, hit, hit the next slide. Okay. All right, I don't know what's going on with it. We'll get to it. You'll see everything in a moment then. All right, so this morning, um, just to kind of preface everything before we get into this, just because as we're doing something slightly different than we normally do, which is that we're taking and we're preaching uh, more of a topical sermon, uh, which is not a bad thing. It's just not an all-normal practice. Um, and we're doing it today primarily because it is Easter, uh, but also just to be transparent, it's because the scripture that we're looking at in Acts is one that is um, a little different than some of the ones we've looked at. And there's some questions there that I think are going to be answered. And so I wanted to wait. Um, I and the elders wanted to wait until everyone could be back could, and not be out of town to be here for that one. Uh, but outside of that, um, it's a little bit different, but it's also important to start off with understanding why uh, John wrote this account of the gospel in the way that he did. And so with that being the case, um, I, want us to say, I want to say something first, though, is that my prayer is that even though we have probably read or heard this sermon, this scripture, or we've heard sermons on it, you know, tens or hundreds or possibly for some, maybe even you've read it thousands of times, who knows? My prayer is that we wouldn't be desensitized to the scripture in which we're about to read and preach through. Because it would be very easy for us to take this and realize that this is something we've heard many times before and not allow it to change our hearts this morning. And so I want us to keep that in mind very first and foremost, because this is something that should never grow old to us. This is a set of scriptures that speaks directly of the crucifixion of our Savior, which means our salvation, which means our redemption. We should not miss this this morning by a lack of humility and need for God's word to speak to us. So John, in the book of John, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, if you just turn, flip over there to me, 30 and 31 John writes these words to end his book. He says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The reason why I'm reading this this morning is because everything we find in the book of John is for this purpose. This purpose is very simply, as it says in verse 30, 
that you may believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is writing everything from chapter 1 to chapter 21 for the purpose of the reader knowing that Jesus was the Savior, that Jesus was the Christ, and in knowing that he was the Christ, that they would have life in him. The reason why that's significant this morning is when you read John's account of the crucifixion, you don't get the beating. You don't get the thorns as much. You don't get a lot of the gruesome and dark and twisted details of what the actual death of Jesus involved. Why? Why would John not include that? It's simply because John is wanting his audience his readers, you and I, to see that Jesus was the Christ and seeing that Jesus was the Christ, that we would have life. And so John is writing it this way so that we would see that Jesus is God and that the death of Christ was the sovereign work of God in redeeming his people. That this wasn't by accident. This wasn't by happenstance. This didn't surprise God. That he, This didn't just magically happen one day. That this was God's plan from the foundation of the world. And as we're going to see in this, so much so that God had his hand in creating the customs and practices of the Roman government thousands of years before Christ would be even crucified to fulfill scriptures that he wrote about even before then. Jesus is our sovereign and suffering king. So this morning, I've said this already, but I want to say it one more time. I hope that we do not approach this crucifixion of Christ as if it is some old news or boring or even repetitive, for it is the good news of our salvation. So as we get into the sermon, we're going to see some things. We're going to see that the sovereign and suffering king died the death I deserved, received the mockery I was due, took on the injustice that I earned, displayed compassion I did not deserve, and accomplished salvation I did not deserve. Thus, I should rightly surrender all and devote my life to being his disciple while trusting he is the only one that will not only save us but maintain my salvation. Therefore, while we seek to work out our salvation, we rest in the finished work upon the cross. You heard a lot of eyes there. Because this sermon, I want you to see in the perspective of yourself. That Christ was the sovereign and suffering king that died on the death that you deserved, received the mockery you were due, took on the injustice that you earned, displayed the compassion you did not deserve, accomplished salvation that you did not deserve. Thus, You should rightly surrender all and devote your life to being his disciple while trusting that he is the one that will not only save you, but maintain your salvation. Therefore, while you you seek to work out your salvation, you rest in his finished work upon the cross. We cannot separate salvation from the church with this morning. I think for us to not see this scripture as repetitive, or boring, or old news, we should take it in as individuals first and foremost. So I want to encourage you, probably the only time that you'll hear me say this, 
to listen to this sermon, listen to the scriptures being read, listen to the facts that are being pulled out of it, and take it internally first so that you can then process it and apply it externally in your life. We're going to get to ways you can do that at the end. So, I don't do this often, though David and Troy do. Uh, Let's stand and read this together. And maybe you're the type that hearing is better than reading to visualize. I would encourage you not to read with me, to just sit there. Maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you have to read to visualize. Then I would encourage you to read it with me. But I want you to try to visualize what's going on here the best way possible. 16b says, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where they were crucified. It was near the city. It was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and his disciple, whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son, Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, once again, to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed down his head and he gave up his spirit. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we will never understand the gravity of this moment in our history. The fact that each of our sins placed him there. The fact that we may not have been physically there, but we were the ones saying crucify. We were the ones nailing him to the cross. We were the ones spitting upon him, mocking him, casting lots for his clothes. God, that spiritually we were all of those things because we rebelled and sinned against you, your holy name. 
But God, in your rich in mercy and love for your people, you sent him to die the death that we deserved. God, that he received the mockery that we were due. He received the injustice that we earned, that he had compassion that I do not deserve and that we do not deserve. God, and he accomplished the salvation that we could never earn. So, Father, let us be renewed this morning in the scripture as we look at the death of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at this in various ways. Go ahead to the next slide for me. We're going to see five different things going on in these set of scriptures. And five bullet points is a lot. I get that. Um, but as we look at this, the first thing we're going to see is that he died the death I deserved. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to look at verses 16 through 18. It says, and so they took Jesus. But who is Jesus? Before we get too far into these verses, I want us to rightly remember who we are talking about bearing his own cross. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 explains that Jesus is, and I'm going to paraphrase this. I'm just going to give us quotes of these three verses. That Jesus is the one through who also he created the world. He's the radiance of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And he is the one that upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is not just another man that had lived his life. Jesus was God in the flesh. Because he's God in the flesh. He is the only individual that was, had, or would live in such a way that did not deserve to take up his own cross as we see that he's about to do. So they took Jesus... The words they hear, speaking of the Roman guards, prepared him for crucifixion. As I said earlier, John does not mention the gruesome details of this crucifixion, of his beating or any of those things. But we see here the active active work of the guards taking Jesus. But let us not lose sight of something. Because as we look at this idea of the sovereign and suffering king, we're looking at the idea of a God that was bigger and stronger and mightier and more powerful than anybody else there. And so certainly the guards are responsible and they were active in the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus was still in control of all of these circumstances. Listen to these next words. It almost sounds like an oxymoron of sorts. It says, bearing his own cross, they crucified him with two others. So for a cross, we often think of the typical lowercase type T, right? The one like that was on the picture earlier uh, and will be on the next picture. But in reality, uh, it could have looked like that or it could have been more like a capital T. And what we see here. As he arrives to the hill, they would place two parts together, nailing him to it. So imagine a capital T, right? Like this. Jesus would have been carrying the top part, and then the bottom part would have been there waiting for him, or vice versa. He would have either been carrying the top part 
the vertical part, or he, or he would have been carried the horizontal. Not both, just one or the other. And then they would have placed him on it, and then they would have lifted him up. And in other accounts, we see this moment where this guy named Simon eventually helps Jesus carry it because he is beaten to an inch of his life. But let's look at this very crucial thing going on here. Is that Jesus, the one who was innocent, takes up the instrument of death that he was a true, uh, that we as true criminals deserved. This was in modern context. I've said this before. This was in modern context. We would certainly see the instrument of death, that of a gas chamber or needle or electric chair. If it would have been 150 years ago, it would have been a firing range or being hung. There's various ways where we would have seen this in history. But what we see in all of this is God is fulfilling the scriptures of the Old Testament in such a way that he had to die in the times of the Roman government. Why? Because God is the sovereign God. That Jesus is the sovereign and suffering king. That he was taken by the Roman guard. He was beaten and hung up on a cross. And in this, the perfect one died the death that he did not deserve. So that God would give life to those who did not deserve it. Thus, Jesus died the death that you and I deserved. So the first thing is very brief, but very important. Is Jesus died in our place. We've sung about this so much this morning already. The next thing we're going to see, though, is that Jesus received the mockery that I was due. Verses 19 through 22. It says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. During this action, Pilate was simply explaining Jesus' charges. But he was also doing a power move against the Jews. But ultimately he was making mockery of Jesus. See, this was a normal tradition of the day and time. He would make a criminal wear a sign with the crime on it, which they carried the cross. And once arriving to the place of the crucifixion, they would nail it to the cross for all to see. So this was a common practice. They would do this because this displayed the charges of the criminal before the city so that everyone who saw them hanging upon the cross, they could look at and they would see in one language or another exactly what that guy did. So this was no new practice. But it's also a power move in the life of Pilate because he was taunting He had already said in verses 14 and 15 that Jesus, with the Jews being their king, it was mockery, as we have already seen. This was not a criminal that was being crucified, but rather it was the one who stepped off the throne of heaven and placed upon the tree. Jesus was being displayed as a criminal who claimed to be the king of the Jews and died for it. 
though everything about that statement was true. They were mocking him. They would spit upon him. They would nail this to the cross. People would onlook and they would think of this crazy man that was crucified that day. This was Roman and Pilate's purposes of the sign. But what I want us to see in all of this is that God had a side purpose and a primary purpose for everything that unfolded in the death of Jesus. So God had a purpose for this sign as well. See, the words that were on the sign were completely true. That for Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews and the cross was a means of his execution and a manner in which he would be glorified. There's this guy named F.F. Bruce. He wrote about this in this way. He said, the crucified one is the true king, the kingiest king of them all, because he is who is stretched out on the cross. He turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory and reigns from the tree. Jesus was no less a sovereign king as he laid on the cross and hung from there because he is God in the flesh. As we continue through and we look at the last few words of Jesus before he gives up his spirit, we're going to see exactly that. But what I want us to see in this is that Jesus, the sovereign and suffering king, received the mockery in his death that you and I were due. We should be mocked for our sin and our rebellion and our wickedness. But instead, Jesus took that on our behalf. The third thing we will see is that Jesus took on the injustice that I earned. It's a weird statement, I know. But it was injustice to Jesus because he had no sin. But it was certainly the justice that I earned. Let's look at 23 and 24. It says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took up his garments and they divided them to four parts. One part of each soldier as his tunic but it was seamless, woven in pieces from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture, which says they divided his garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. I've said this a lot so far. But we're reminded in this set of verses about the clothing in which Christ was wearing. That he was perfectly innocent one. And which created all things necessary to create the clothes themselves. Jesus. The creator of all. The creator of the world. The creator of cotton. The creator of whatever these clothes were made out of. Is hanging upon the cross. Taking this injustice. Though he is God himself. But it says this, it says, the soldiers took his garments and divided into four parts. The tunic was seamless. I'm going to pause there because John explains that there were four soldiers that were directly involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. But this also presents a unique uh, portion of the crucifixion for the one on the cross would be stripped completely naked before being nailed to the cross. So Jesus, bare naked on the cross, being beaten to an inch of his life, is hanging there. These soldiers are on the ground casting lots for his clothing. But it says that he had four pieces of clothing. Most likely Jesus had a belt, sandals, head covering, and a robe. 
while the fifth would have been this seamless tunic that would go underneath all of those things, but it would have been of high quality and the guards cost, cast lots for them. This could have been something they may, may have wanted to wear or would have kept as some kind of prize for their crucifixion. Well, I want to see two things were clear here. And I've said this about other things. This was a common practice in the Roman guards while crucifying individuals. Jesus wasn't the first person this happened to. This was their practice. But I want to see why. I want to say this. That this was a common practice because it is the perfect will of the Father to provide His Son as a burnt offering for all who would believe in Him. How do I know that to be the case? Is because right after that, it says this was to fulfill... They divided my garments and my clothing. They casted lots from Psalms twenty two eighteen. That this wasn't an incidental practice of the Roman government. This was a practice of the Roman government because God is a sovereign God who was saving society from their sins. All who would believe and trust in Him. That He was providing His Son as a burnt offering for those who would believe. Just like the rest of most of these practices of Jesus' death, they were not used, they were used not only because they were common practice, but because God is sovereign. So the sovereign and suffering king took on the injustice that I earned. From there, we're going to see that. The sovereign and suffering king displayed the compassion I did not deserve. Now, I'm going to be honest on the front end of this. When you look at 25, 26, and 27, it almost seems like this shouldn't have been there or should have been somewhere else because it's a break. We see this moment in which Jesus is mocked, this moment where he's nailed to the cross, his sign above his head, they're casting lots for him. And as Jesus is hanging there, this is what happens. But standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Calipas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and his disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the desire took the disciple took him home to took her home to his own home. So what we have going on here is standing by the cross, his mother and the disciple whom he loved. All right, so in this part of the scripture, we see that beside the cross are five individuals that are specifically referenced. There could have been more. We don't know, but we know these five were there. There were the three Marys, Jesus' aunt, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, which, by the way, is John. So John is an eyewitness of this, this crucifixion, so he's writing on behalf of what occurred. So an eyewitness is standing there, and as he's standing there, the author of this book is looked at by the Savior. But what's so interesting about even the placement of this in the book of John is that Jesus' mother is only mentioned in one other place, in the book of John at least. And it was the, it was the moment in which he did his first sign in wonder in the start of his ministry, which was turning water into wine. 
And so what's so interesting about this is his mother's not mentioned again from chapter three, two or three to chapter 19. And in chapter, the first sign that he displayed was essentially pointing out that he would be the one that would pour out his blood, which is represented by wine, to save humanity. Now she's present with him again. Now, what's also weird about this is just the whole encounter. Well, this is what he says. This is a paraphrase. It says, woman, behold your son. And then he's speaking to the one he loves. He says, behold your mother. See, this is the most difficult part of this set of verses for me to preach through. And you can't just skip it, right? You can't, you can't just get to verse 25 and say, oh, I'm not going to preach that part. And then jump all the way to verse 28. No, you've got you to gotta do something with it. So in these moments, I ask myself these questions. Is why does John tell us this? Was it a power move on John's behalf? No, it's not. Why does he place it right here? Why didn't he put it on the beginning or the end? Why does he even mention it in 1st or 2nd and 3rd John? He, you know, he wrote other books of the Bible. Why does he put it right here? And then the f- most confusing part is what does it even mean? To be honest, there are a lot, there are a lot and I mean a lot of theories of what this means. None of them were convincing to me. None of them, I think, can be backed up specifically in Scripture. So what should we take from this? How should we walk away from this moment in the crucifixion of Christ and say, ah, that makes sense? I'll say this. It is widely believed that at this point in Jesus' life, his earthly father, Joseph, had died. And that him, being the oldest of his siblings, Mary was dependent upon Jesus for her livelihood. Thus, in the moment of his death, he is providing earthly provider for his mother. To make that conclusion make even more sense, is that in Jewish tradition, when one was crucified or killed for blasphemy, everyone in the family would have denounce that individual, excommunicated them per se. And if there would have been someone that would have followed after that person as if they were God, then they would have been excommunicated as well. At this point in Jesus' life, none of his brothers are following him. We certainly know of some of his brothers that come to know him. Uh, James, he writes the book of James, comes to know him. We, we understand that this occurs, but not yet. And so in this moment, Jesus it realizes that his earthly mother would be left without being taken care of because he was crucified as a blasphemous individual. Therefore, his family would reject him. And because she followed him, his family would have rejected her as well. So Jesus looks out at her, his mother, says, Behold, your son And then to his disciple in which he loved, behold your mother. Saying, look, take care of her. So how do we make this connection to us? Jesus was showing compassion to his mother during his death. And though it differs in many ways, and it's obvious that it does, isn't this the center of the message of the cross? 
That God would show compassion on those who do not necessarily deserve it. That as we hung on the cross, dying for our sins, decided to show compassion for sinners that have rebelled and rejected him. The compassion was displayed, though we did not deserve it. And then as we get to the final moments in Jesus' life, in 28 through 30, we see yet again another way in which Scripture is fulfilled. So we see the sovereign king, but we're going to see a final moment of the suffering king. And then after that, we're going to see an ultimate power move where the sovereignty of Christ is on display. Let's read 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge on a, of sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We're going to see here that Jesus accomplished the salvation that I could not earn. Those have been made abundantly clear throughout this sermon this morning. That as we gathered, as we sunk of who God was, declared our, our wretchedness and our sinfulness, our need of a Savior, declaring what Christ has done for us, our thanksgiving of what he has done for us and what that will look like in the future. Though this is made clear this morning, There's nothing innately good in any of us that caused us to be saved or that would cause us to be saved. Meaning that we were not good when we were saved. God did not look through the corridors of time to see that we would do so much good things, so therefore we were worth saving. Rather, there was something innately bad and evil in each of us that causes us to be wicked and depraved creatures and is in our own sin and it runs to the core of who we are. The holiness of God and the depravity of man is the foundational blocks of the gospel. But this moment in scripture displays the greatness of who God is and the death in which Christ died. So once again, we see the words to fulfill scripture. John is speaking of something that was happening for the purpose of fulfilling scripture. Though we'll not look at it today, it's later in the chapter 19 that we're going to be reminded once again that you keep reading through 19 that Jesus is the sovereign and suffering king and perfectly fulfilling the will of the Father. Listen to the words here. It says, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. What does he mean by that? That all scripture was fulfilled except for one thing. And that one thing was the phrase, I thirst. We're going to get to the it is finished in a moment because that's the pinnacle of everything we're talking about this morning. But I want you to imagine this with me. In other accounts of the gospel, Jesus was offered wine as he marched through the city with the cross. He denied it because it was sweet wine, meaning that it would help dull the pain of the cross. Many believe that this was possibly what's going on here, but that's not the case. The sour wine here, 
would not dole the pain of the cross, but rather it would intensify it. Why? For two reasons. One, sour, therefore it would quench the thirst, but it would hurt. Why would it hurt? Because they took this sponge. I just want you to imagine this with me. Imagine like the big, I don't know what this looked like. I'm assuming like a gourd or something like that. But imagine a big sponge that you wash your car with, right? And imagine it on the end of a stick and they push it up to his mouth. And as they push it up to his mouth, there's no just biting into it and it just going all in your mouth, right? So it's pushed up against him and then this sour wine drips down his body. Much like vinegar. And so all of these open wounds and cuts were now intensified. That at the last moment of his death, he then tells the people to inflict more pain upon him. But what does he say? He says he said this. It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Listen, I'm going to get to that it's finished. But it says he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Christ was in control of his crucifixion. To the T, to the dot, to the period, he was in control. He didn't die by the hands of the Roman government, though they were certainly part of it. He gave up his spirit because he is a sovereign God in the flesh of man. But the word, it is finished, is the word tetelestai. Fantastic word. It's Greek. Doesn't mean anything to you if you don't know Greek. It didn't mean anything to me until I studied it. Because I've taken Greek, but I don't know Greek. So why use the word here this morning? Because to telestai, um, it's much like other Greek words and even English words. It has a root word. That root word is to tello, which denotes the earning of a task. And in religious contexts, Beats the overdone and fulfilling one's religious obligations. This is so amazing thing about what Jesus did, not only fulfilling the religious obligations, because he was perfect, he was sinless, he had no error in him. So it's not as if he was fulfilling some religious obligations for himself. It's not as if if he didn't die on the cross, he would die and go to hell. He was God in the flesh. Rather, in this moment in which Jesus says the words to telestai, what he was saying was it was being fulfilled the obligations for all who would place their trust and faith in him. That it is done. There's nothing more, nothing less that we have to do is then to believe and trust in Jesus. Because on that day, when he utters the words to telestai, it's what God had ordained from the foundation of the world was accomplished. And that was salvation through Christ Jesus to all who would believe and trust in him. So hanging on this word. I think are some good concepts for us to land on before we sing. The first one, and I don't know, I, like, I don't know if any of us fall a specific area or not. I don't know if this is going to hit home to us or if it's going to mean anything to us. 
But I do see four clear things in this. First and foremost, well, there's really going to be five. First, for those that are struggling, I mean struggling, and I've been there. Many of us would admit that we've been there. That are struggling with assurance of their salvation. Meaning that they question regularly, did I really get saved? Am I really going to be redeemed? And look, pastoral counsel is extremely helpful if that's you. I would encourage you, if you're a part of Redeemer, to come and let's talk. But I want to remind you something very briefly. So that salvation is not given to you by God because of something you did. It's not only given to you by God, but it is upheld by God. That you have to truly place your faith in Jesus, the Son of God, to find comfort. Now, if your confession is in anything besides Jesus, if it's based on your goodness or the way you parent or the way that you live or the way that you work or the way that your husband or wife or the good things you do, there is no counteracting the balance of the bad things and wicked things you've done, then, then you should not find comfort. But if you are trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to redeem and save you, certainly see pastoral counsel, but find comfort in knowing that Jesus has redeemed you. But what about those that have placed their faith in Jesus and they're not struggling with that assurance of faith? Go and tell the good news of the gospel. We're going to end with Matthew 28, 18 through 20 like we do every other week. Go and be sent. Raise your families in light of the gospel. Those who have families that are no longer kids anymore. Be a light of the gospel to them as they raise their kids. Those who don't have kids, prepare your heart now for the mother or the father that you're going to be for when you do have kids. Because it'll hit and one day you're going to feel hopelessly unqualified to do it. Work your jobs in light of the gospel. Go to school in light of the gospel. Listen to your teachers. Do your homework in light of the gospel. Play sports in light of the gospel. Coach sporting sports in light of the gospel. And maybe you don't fit into any of these categories. Do all that you do in this life in light of the gospel. It transcends all areas of our lives. For that person... That it's on the opposite end of struggling for assurance of salvation. That they're trying to still earn their salvation. That they're trying to seek to be good enough. Then I would tell you to quit. Just quit. There's nothing you can do that is good enough. Trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Maybe there's someone here or watching online. If my phone is still not dead and still charged. That doesn't know Jesus. Trust in Him. He spilled His blood. He broke His body so that those who would believe and trust in Him could be saved. This is the fifth one I said that I would say. 
It's not on my paper here. But it's a heartbeat of who we are at Redeemer. The word to telestai is why we end our statement, our mission statement, with the phrase, rest in Christ. Because Christ has finished it all. We rest in him. We trust in him. We rely on him to save us. But we rest in him when we seek to tell the good news of the gospel, to raise our children in light of the gospel, to work our jobs in light of the gospel, to go to school in light of the gospel, to coach sporting events in light of the gospel, to play sports in light of the gospel, and do all that we do in light of the gospel. We rest in the finished work of Christ because he is the one that redeems and saves other people. So this morning, I'm going to ask Troy to go ahead and come. I'm going to end with this. And it's John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We see that the sovereign and suffering king died the death we deserved, received the mockery we were due, took on the injustice that we earned, displayed compassion we did not deserve, and accomplished salvation we did not deserve. Thus, we should rightly surrender all of our lives to being his disciples while trusting he is the one that will not only save us but maintain our salvation. Therefore, while we seek to work out our salvation, we rest and his finished work on the cross. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray now that you would continue to enlighten our hearts and our soul and our minds on the goodness of who you are for redeeming and saving us through your Son. God, we could read this scripture every day of our lives and never truly comprehend the reality of it for us. But Father, we pray now in a piece of it this morning you would show us your goodness. And I pray that this next song would be our plea together before we leave when, until we gather again. In your son's holy name, amen.